All right, let's uh, take our Bibles this evening, and we're going to go to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Thank you, Tori. Thank you, Tori. I want you to, first of all, hold your place in chapter 9, and then, yeah, if you'd pass those out. Thank you, Reese and brother here. Eli, would you pass those out? We have something to help you. If you want to just look on the screen, you don't have to fill that out. It's just to kind of keep you engaged with, uh, with the message tonight, with our teaching in 1 Corinthians, and then, uh, but there'll be help on the screen, scriptures and things on the screen. I appreciate our guys doing this. Let me um, hold your place in chapter 9. We're all the way to chapter 9 in, in this text of scripture, or in this book, the book of Corinthians, and this is our 19th message, 19th teaching in this tonight, and so we're moving along here, but I want to go back a little bit and look at chapter 1, if you would. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to highlight some things, and then we're going to get into this, this tonight. I have a lot to say. I appreciate them um, leading our worship tonight. These songs were great. You know, in chapter 1, you know, Paul went to this city. Actually, in uh, Acts 18, he went to this city. And then in, he writes back to this city sometime later. The first chapter, the first part of the chapter... In chapter 1, Paul talks about what God has done in them. In a very dark, wicked city, people got saved. You know, people get saved in any city. You know, the gospel is not bound. So sometimes when it's darkest, the light is, is highlighted the most. I know years ago, David Wilkerson went to New York City in the 80s, and he went down in Times Square, and there was so much sin down there. I won't go into all that, but he started preaching the gospel there, and the Lord just did a great work there at Times Square Church now. I was, um, we were there some time ago. I forget, October, last October, we were in New York City at an, actually another church, a conference there. But I had to take the subway and went down to Times Square. And I caught the end of their service, and they were worshiping the Lord. And God's done a great work there. And New York City is not the godliest city on the planet, you know, a lot of sin there. But he took the gospel, preached as straight as a man could preach. And yet people responded because a lot of empty people in our world today, and they're looking for something and a lot of voices coming that are false voices. But let's get our voice out there, the voice of the word of God that says Jesus Christ is the Savior. So he writes to them and tells them what they are. But then in this first chapter, he starts talking about, about the gospel and about the cross and about how they need to center on that and the wisdom of God. You know, what had happened, I think, is the Corinthian church they received the gospel and they got it right from Paul. But then what they did when he left, they started mixing it with human wisdom. And I'm seeing a lot of that today, by the way. I'm seeing a lot of gospel with a little bit of human wisdom in it. The gospel needs no addition of our help. And so he had to write back and correct them. And then the second chapter, Paul is talking really about his ministry, how he went there. And he was really comparing his ministry, not really comparing, but trying to show them what real ministry was. And he was saying, you know, when I came to you, I came in weakness. I, I didn't come in strength. I came in weakness. I came in trembling. But I came depending on the power of the Holy Spirit. The latter part of that chapter, he starts talking about, about God's wisdom and how the Holy Spirit gave us the word of God. And it's not human wisdom, but it's God's wisdom. It's spiritual wisdom. And it, it, it is right. And it, it is true. The third chapter, he starts dealing with divisions in the church. This is one of the major things happening in Corinth. They were so divided. They were divided in little groups behind little preachers and all of this. And, and Paul just had to, to deal with that. And all that really came from worldly wisdom. In the fourth chapter, 
Paul really talks about the ministry there and about how the ministers are stewards. We're not owners. No minister is an owner of the gospel or owner of anything. We're stewards, and we're called to be faithful, to deliver the word of God, to just say what God has said and lead the people toward Christ. In the end of that chapter, Paul talks about his paternal care. He was like a father to them. How many know that you feel different? You know, you love all people, hopefully, but you feel different about your kids. I mean, you have a special love toward your kids, and that Paul had a special love toward these people. I mean, he loved them so much, I'm sure they infuriated him. He's, he's loving them. He's comforting them. He's rebuking them sometimes. He's saying, man, you've got to get right. This is not what you need to be. You need to come out of that and begin to walk in the Holy Spirit. Fifth and sixth chapter, Paul starts dealing with immorality. There was immorality, not just you know, blatant. I would call it blatant immorality. Sixth chapter, Paul deals with people, Christians suing each other and that kind of nonsense. Chapter seven, he starts talking about marriage. And how their marriages need to be right. And we dealt with that. We dealt with singleness there. And then in chapter 8, last week we dealt with, we're going to move into this and that, we dealt with meat sacrifice to idols. You say, what in the world does that have to do with me? And, and tonight we're going to deal with supporting the ministry. How in the world does all this connect together? I mean, you got a chapter 8, Paul's talking about meat sacrificing to idols. Some Christians thought it was, yeah, we could eat it, no big deal. Other Christians said, no, no, I just came out of that. And now, now and we know that the Bible did not have chapters and verses when it was written. So this is all one fluid message here. So when we look at this and we go, okay, we're just moving out of meat sacrifice to idols, which really wasn't about meat sacrifice to idols. It was about being sensitive to a weak brother and being sensitive to conscience. But now let's look at this tonight. Just wonder, I wanted to review just a little bit. We come to chapter 9, and we go from the issue, really, of Christian liberty, eat, you know, eating meats dedicated to idols. The mature Christian said it was good, no problem. No, you know, there's no such thing as an idol. There's only one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But as I said, the, the, the immature Christians were like, no, 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 I don't want anything to do with that. And Paul said, hey, Paul's message there was really this, refrain from doing that if it's going to hurt a weaker brother, or if it's going to cause someone to stumble. It's not a big issue. You know, that's not a, I mean, you know, eating meat sacrificed to idols is not a salvation issue. It's not a major top-shelf issue. It's a minor thing. And those minor areas, he said, you need to be careful about that. So here we are. We come to chapter 9. What I want to do is, well, I'll read this text as I go along. Okay, so keep your Bible open. This will be on the screen. I'll read the text as we go along. But here, Paul... In chapter 9 is once again talking really about self-denial and he's going to give some, some personal illustrations on that. He really is in the same principle. He's talking about the same thing. It's just another side of the coin, but it's the same issue here. What Paul is going to talk about tonight here in chapter 9 is his rights and privileges, rights and privilege that him that he, as an apostle, some things that he's going to say, I have the right to do this. I have the right to claim this as an as a apostle, as a servant of the Lord. And what he's going to talk about is financial support for the ministry. Now, I personally would rather not talk about this, but I'm the pastor. And we're in this text of Scripture and we're committed to going chapter by chapter, verse by verse through this. So I would rather not say this personally, 
but I will say this because it's what the Word of God says. Can I hear an amen? If it's in the Word, we want to follow it because these are the words of our Lord through the apostles. So the issue is, these, it involved, Paul has rights. He's talking about financial support for his labor in Christ. And even though he could claim this, you're going to see this tonight, that he chose not to do this in Corinth. Did you catch that? Had the right, but he chose not to do it in Corinth at that time. He was willing to deny himself, get this, in Corinth, though he had a right to claim it. So here's the point as we begin. What we know is this, that Paul gladly received financial support from other churches in other cities, but he would not take financial support in a church he had just started while he was in that church. Did, are you captured that? Do, do you realize this, that, that he left, and after he left some of those churches that he started, he received financial support with them, from them. For instance, let me show you this. The Macedonian churches helped Paul and supported Paul while he was at Corinth. Notice this. And, and so that's, that's the reason there. So we're going to look at some scripture tonight. So here's the, here's the issue. Paul gives biblical grounds why, the, why it's scriptural to financially support pastors, missionaries, evangelists, those in full-time ministry for Christ. You have your paper there. Hopefully this will be on the screen to help you. First of all, write this in there, the credentials of Paul. Paul's going to give us his credentials. Verses 1 and 2, look at this. Not, uh, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have not I, have not I seen the Lord Jesus, or Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Am I not an apostle? If I am not an apostle to others, yet, yet doubtless I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. The credentials of Paul, right in credentials. It's really hard to comprehend that some of the people at Corinth, at this church in Corinth, it's hard to imagine that they doubted his apostleship. I mean, the whole second book of the whole book of 2 Corinthians is really Paul defending his apostleship. The whole book. It's hard to imagine that here we have the greatest Christian to ever live, in my opinion. The greatest person outside of Jesus did more for Christianity. Now, certainly we don't know them all. We don't know all the people, all the Christians throughout history. But can you name anyone that has done more for Christianity than the Apostle Paul? And here are these people that doubted that he was even an apostle. Think about that. That tells us that people can be very blind. That tells us this, that Satan is very effective at blinding people to truth and to reality. But it happened in Jesus' day. They doubted the very deity of our Lord Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. The very Son of God coming in human flesh. And they denied him. They only denied him. They crucified him. People can be very, very blind. They were blind to greatness that was right before him. So, so some doubted Paul's credentials. So what does he do? He, he uses four questions to prove the genuineness of his apostleship. 
Apostles were a very, now listen, apostles were very, a very select group of people. Are you, do you capture that? These, listen, the original apostles were very unique people. Okay? Are there apostles today? Yes. Are there apostles like them? No. You got that? Are there apostles today? Is there apostolic leadership today? Is there apostolic ministry today? Of course there is. You, you could see when people have apostolic leadership in certain areas, are there any more of the original? No, they're not like that. They were very unique. Even after the apostles, there were people called apostles. These were very unique, very gifted men. An apostle, the word apostle means a messenger. One sent forth with orders. Now, we know that there's none like the original, the 13 and Paul. Did you notice I said the 13 and Paul, not the 12 and Paul? Because after Judas went his way, then they chose a man. Remember the man's name? Anyone remember his name? Matthias. Everyone say Matthias. Matthias was included with the 12. And then later, Paul was one. Here's the scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, 8. Then, last of all, Paul said, he was seen by me. Paul also has one born out of due time. One translation says, one abnormally born. He was abnormally born. He wasn't like the 12. Now, write this. Here are the requirements. Write that in. The requirements of the original 13 plus Paul. I'm going to give you four things here. I'm going to give them quickly for time's sake. First of all, write the word sight, S-I-G-H-T, sight of the risen Lord. Sight of the risen Lord. Here's one of the requirements of the original apostles was they were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul said here in the verse I read you in our text, have I not seen the Lord? Now, I don't know about you, but I've never seen the Lord. Now, some people claim they have received the Lord. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I've heard people talk so weird about I sat down and had coffee with Jesus three days, and we had tea together. They're a liar. They are liars. There's people that say that stuff. I do not believe it. If you met the risen Lord, I'm going to tell you, you would fall down, and you would humble yourself. You wouldn't be having tea with him. I don't believe it. I believe these men have seen the Lord. Now, could the Lord appear? Yes, but watch what they say. Have I not seen the Lord's... 2 Timothy 1.12, Paul said, I know whom I believe. Notice that. Not I know what I believe, but Paul said, I know whom I believe. This is 2 Timothy 1.12. What does he mean by that? He means that he saw the Lord. He had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He saw Jesus Christ after the resurrection. We, let's read about it. Acts chapter 9 verse 3. And, and as he journeyed, this is Paul, he came near to Damascus, and suddenly there shined around him a light from heaven. Now notice this. He had tea with him, and we fellowshiped together, and I, I punched him in the arm. No. We're talking about Christ here. Notice this. And he fell to the earth, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why persecute thou me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecuted. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I remind you, Paul was completely blind after that experience. Our Lord is awesome. Our Lord is to be feared. He is mighty. 
But Paul was completely behind until Ananias, he gets honorable mention in the Bible. Just mentioned one time, just gets a few verses. He was just a humble disciple of the Lord in Damascus. The Lord spoke to him, Ananias, go to down to this house and this street and this place. A man by the name of Saul there, he's praying. I want you to pray for him. He's blind. I'm going to give him sight. I'm going to fill him with the Holy Spirit. He's a chosen vessel of mine. Lord, can you get someone else? <laughs> I've heard about this man. He is dangerous. He destroys your church. He destroys your people. Don't say that. He's a chosen vessel. Paul was prayed for by this humble man. Healed his eyes. Filled with the Holy Spirit. And I love one of my favorite verses in Acts. One of my favorite phrases in Acts is what Ananias said to Paul, said to Saul. He said this, Brother Saul. This guy had murdered people. This guy had destroyed the church. But the Lord had showed Ananias that now Saul was a believer and a servant of Jesus Christ. And when he saw him, he didn't say, hey, man, I'm going to put you on trial. I'm going to put you on probation. Man, I don't know. Hey, brother, you sit over there. I'll sit over here. No, he said, what did he say? Brother Saul. Do you know the moment someone gets saved, no matter how long they lived in sin, no matter what they've done, no matter how long they've been there, I'm going to tell you, the moment they give their heart to Jesus, they go from darkness to light, they become part of the family. Come on, amen? That's the power of the gospel. So what am I saying? I'm saying one of the requirements that they see the Lord, Acts 18, 89, or 9 and 10 says this, "Then the Lord, Then spoke the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and hold thy peace. I won't read the next one, but he, he spoke to the Lord. He saw him again. He saw him in a vision. Look at Acts twenty two fourteen. Then he said, uh, Then he said, The God of, of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will and, and, and see the just one. That's what and see the just one and hear his voice, the voice of his mouth. So not only did Saul or Paul see the Lord. But he heard his voice. Look at Acts, uh, verse 17, 18 of that chapter, Acts 22. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple, and I was in a trance, and I saw him. Here it is again. Make haste. Get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. Acts three fifteen says this. This is the preacher Peter preaching. And killed the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, whereof? We are witnesses. In other words, the original 12 were witnesses. Physically saw the resurrected Jesus, our Lord. Acts 4.33. And with great power gave the apostles witness of what? Of the resurrection of Jesus. Great grace was upon them all. What was one of the requirements? They had to see the Lord. Here's the second one. Write this word. Signs and wonders. Signs and wonders were performed by them. Here's a miracle of that going through... Uh, Paul, Saul, Eliamus the sorcerer. Here's what he said to him, Acts 13, 11. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. Notice this. And immediately fell on him a mist of darkness, and of darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Here's miracles flowing through these men of God. Such anointing and such power through these original apostles. He saw this sorcerer. This, he was hindering the work of God. The Lord said, to, you're not doing this. You're going to be blind for a season. It was a miracle. 2 Corinthians 12.12 12 says this. Paul speaking in 2 Corinthians. Truly, 
the signs of an apostle were wrought among you with, in all patience. Notice, in signs and wonders and in mighty deeds. Here's the, here's the third requirement, and that's write the word successful, a successful ministry. Now, the Corinthian church were the, was the result of Paul's ministry. God used Paul to perform miracles. You know, you, you, you get the, in the first chapter of the book of Corinthians here, you, you see that there was no gift that wasn't flowing there. The Lord was doing great things. Paul would at times execute judgment, reach people for Christ. Paul was anointed to write the word of God. Have you ever wondered what that was like, that such anointing would come upon you? They weren't robots. God flowed through their personality. We see the personality of the, of the writers of the Gospels and the Word of God. We see their personality in the writing, but it was just what God wanted to write down. Paul was used to write probably about 14 books, and I believe he probably wrote Hebrews. Many say that we don't know, and we really don't know for sure, but I think Paul wrote that. So if, if he did, he wrote 13 books of your Bible. That was the Apostles. So what is it? The Corinthians, you see in the text, Paul said, you're the seal of my ministry. What does that mean? The seal, the word seal means, it means authentication. It authenticated. You authenticate something. In the ancient times, they would send shipments of grain, and they would seal it with a seal. And if that seal was tampered with, it would, it would be discarded. It had been tampered with. In that day, a wheel was sealed with seven seals. What do we see in Revelation chapter 6? From God's hand, it gave the Lord what? A seal with seven seals. And a wheel was given that. And if that wheel didn't have that, it was missing that or tampered with, it was rendered useless. The Corinthian Christians, listen, were a seal. They authenticated Paul's apostleship. It was genuine. Paul was what he claimed to be, his credentials. Look at the second thing quickly. Write this word, concepts. Let's look at some concepts of the provision of God's servants. Verse 3 through 6. Through, uh, three through six. Follow with me on the screen here. It may be in your notes. Here's what it says. My defense of those who examine me, underscore the word defense, if you want to in your Bible, Underscore the word examine. We'll come back to those of me. Is this. Do we, not, do we have no right to eat and drink? That's an important phrase. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we, not, do we have no right to take along a believing wife? As do others, also uh, the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord. See, the brothers of Jesus didn't believe on him while he was living. But after he resurrected... Those brothers got saved and started in the ministry. Jude, the little book of Jude, that's one of Christ's brothers. And then it says, and Cephas, look at verse 6. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Now the word examine means to investigate, to scrutinize, to sift, or to judge. It really can mean examination by torture. So Paul's real, these Corinthians are really examining Paul. Paul, are you really an apostle? Are you the real deal? And so they were giving him a hard time. The word defense there that I had you underscore means a verbal defense. So what Paul is doing, 
He's verbally defending his right as, a, as a, an apostle, as a worker for Christ, to be compensated. Here's what he says. The, the phrase in the text I just read, do we not have the right to eat and drink? That means this, do we not have the right to financial support? That's what Paul is saying there. And what he's saying is this, we have the authority for, for this. We have, we have the right to this. That's what it means, the right to enjoy this. He had the right of financial support. He had the right to be supported by them. He accepted this from other churches. He accepted this from other towns. Even while he was in Corinth, he accepted support for his ministry. Lydia, remember Lydia? What a great woman of God. Acts 16, 15, look at the screen. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, Lydia, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Lydia, a mighty woman of God, a mighty supporter of God's word and God's church and Apostle Paul. She said, we want to support you. We want to give you lodging. Look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 14 through 18 on the screen again. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. So here, Paul, writing in prison. I was at the dentist today, and the dentist said, I've been to Rome. I was telling him I was a minister. He said, right before my wife and I got married, or when my wife and I got married, he said, we took a trip to Rome. Here's what he said to me. He said, and we saw the ruins. We saw the, the things there. And we, here's what he said to me. We saw where Paul was in prison. I said, so you saw the Mamertine prison? He said, I sure did. Paul is writing here from the Mamertine prison or the rented house. In other words, he's in jail. Verse 15, they, they supported him there. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me, in, uh, me concerning giving and receiving, but only you. Let me tell you quickly here. I've got, a lot, I've got some more to say. I need about 15 more minutes. Come on, say amen. You give me 15 minutes? How many give me 15 minutes? Let me see. 15 minutes? 15, 30. <laughs> you need to hear this. Paul, Corinthian church was much different than the Philippian church. Philippian church had very few issues. Paul's not dealing with a lot of error issues there. A little teeny bit of conflict started. But this church in Corinth, they're dealing with some issues. He's trying to straighten them out. Look what he says in verse 16. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again to my necessities. Not that I seek a gift, but I seek fruit to your account. 2 Corinthians 11, 8 on the screen. Look at this. I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. So Paul didn't take anything from the Corinthian church when he was there. New church. Thought it would hinder, but what he did is he received from others why he was there. When he says I robbed churches, he didn't mean he robbed. Yeah, it's a, that's a that's a proverbial saying that I, I received from other churches. Now look at this. Paul's choice of support to support himself was not something that he, you know, Paul was a tent maker. That wasn't something that was a rule he put on other. That's something he chose to do. Other apostles and other ministers could do it, could not give it, uh, not do it, but that was his choice. Now, let's look down a little bit in this text. Paul mentions in what I just read that the other apostles were married. We know Peter was married. I don't know why the Catholic Church, you know, makes all their ministers not married because Peter, their first, what they think was their first pope, he wasn't. 
was married. I, I've been to Peter's mother-in-law's house. We saw her house. We saw her house where Jesus touched her hand and the fever left. So Paul says here, don't we, do we not have the right to take a believing wife along? So it's evident that, that the other apostles were married, and when they were ministering, they brought their wives with them. And not only did the churches support the apostles, but supported their wives and their families as well. It's, we see that there. So Paul's point is this. Here's, the, here's what he's getting at. Since the other apostles enjoyed a family... Since the other apostles joined family support, don't, don't, don't we, Barnabas and Saul, have the privilege to do that also? This is the point that Paul's getting at here. He and Barnabas should not be excluded from the support. Look at the third thing quickly. We're going to go quick here. Write the word clarifying. Paul's going to clarify some things here. He's going to give us four illustrations that prove his point that we should support the ministry. We should support the work of God. We should support pastors. We should support missionaries. We should support the work of God. This is what the text is saying. Now, I'm actually not going to read all of that. You read it in verse 9 or 7 through 11. Write those references down. But Paul deals with four things in the text. First of all, write this, the soldier. Write that in, the soldier. No soldier provides for his own rations. He doesn't serve as, at, with his own expense. He doesn't fight during the day, work a civilian job at night to eat. But those things are provided for him. Clothing, lodging, whatever he needs to fight effectively is provided. And Paul is saying this, in the same manner, should not the soldiers of Christ be supported? Write this, the farmer. It's in the text, you read it. The farmer. The person who plants the vineyard shares in the fruit of the vineyard. He is compensated for his labors from the vineyard. Paul is saying here this, Should not the men of God who plant the seed of the word of God among the people of God, his vineyard, also be compensated? 2 Corinthians 2.6 says this, The hardworking farmer must first be partakers of the crops. Right? This word, the shepherd. The shepherd. The shepherd of the flock gets the food from the flock. Why should the pastor not receive compensation from the flock? That's what Paul is saying here. All of these occupations are compensated for their labors. Are you hearing me? All these occupations are compensated for their labor. So should the men and people of God. The next one, the scripture. This is the most important one. Because Jesus also used this. I won't read his, but even the ox is not muzzled. Deuteronomy 25, 4. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Paul is saying this. If God is sure to make sure that the oxen are taken care of, are you not more important than an oxen? It's not a person of God. It's not a man of God. It's not an apostle, an evangelist. It's more important than an ox, he's saying. They don't muzzle them while they're treading out the corn. They're allowed to eat the corn. They're allowed to reap the benefits. Here's what I would say to you. There's nothing honorable about starving a pastor and his family. How is God glorified in that? I know a lot of pastors. We, we hear Stephanie came in the other night, and we were, we were having a meeting. We had 30, 40, 50 pastors or whatever it was. And Stephanie didn't know the meeting was going on. She came in. This place was full of ministers. I know a lot of ministers. A lot of circumstances that they're in. 
How is, how is it a good testimony for a church that won't take care of their pastor? Paul is very clear in this text that God's servants deserve to be taken care of. 1, 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in word and in doctrine. The word honor in that text means this, honor and respect, but it also means honorarium, the price of the labor, the compensation for the work. Any pastor deserves double compensation because of the work that he's doing. The point is this. Hear this. When a church cares for their pastor, the pastor can concentrate on the word of God, time in the word of God, preaching the word of God, messages that are going to feed, that are going to, be the, that are going to feed the church. That's the goal. That is the goal. And then everybody wins. The church grows. But when, that, when a pastor is neglected, they become drained, discouraged, distracted. And then they get discouraged. The church suffers. Write this down quickly. The reason for exodus of pastors from the ministry. The reason of exodus of pastors from the ministry. First of all, write the families, families of pastors. Listen to these. Listen closely. 90% of pastors report working 55 to 75 hours per week. 90% of them. 80% of pastors believe that pastor ministry has negatively affected their families. 80%. Many pastors' children grow up and leave the church and never, ever return to the church again because they've seen how their mom and dad are treated through the years and they want nothing to do with God or the church because they connect it with the church. It's not really God. It's just people that are not saved. 33%, 33% of pastors state that being in the ministry has been an outright hazard to their families. An outright hazard to families. Write this in. The finances of pastors. Some pastors have to work a secular job while also pastoring a church. I know, I know pastors that are bivocational. I commend them for that. They burn the candle at both ends, and then they burn out emotionally, physically, spiritually. Write this. The stress of the ministry. 70% of pastors constantly fight depression. 70% constantly fight depression. 75% of pastors report a significant stress-related crisis at least once in their ministry that was overwhelming to their lives. 75%. 70% say that they have a lower self-image now than when they started in the ministry. Write these words in, the friendships of pastors. 70% of pastors state that they do not have anyone, anyone they consider a close friend. Been betrayed so many times, they just said, I'm just not going down that, that road anymore. 70% of pastors. Write this in. What are some of the consequences of the crisis? Here it is. 4,000 churches a year closing in some denominations. Or, or broadly. Many denominations have what they call an empty pulpit crisis. And some denominations, they just can't find enough pastors to fill the pulpits. Here's what I'd say to you. If you plan to go in full-time ministry, you better understand this. There's no glitz. There's no glamour. There's no goofing off all the time. If you're going to fulfill your ministry, it's going to be hard work. It's going to be tough. And you better know you're called or you'll never make it. You see that? We'll close quickly. Write this. Number four, the concern. Here's Paul's concern. 
He didn't want to hinder the ministry. Look at this, verse 12. If others are partakers of the right over you, we are even more. Nevertheless, we have not used the right. He had the right, but this was a plant church. This wasn't a church that had been around. I mean, our church, this church is 80 years old. That church was brand new. New Christians, he didn't want anything to hinder the gospel. But we endure all things lest we hinder the gospel. That's the issue there. That's the issue. Look at the fifth, fifth thing we're done. Write this, the conclusion. Conclusion about the ministers. A typo there. If you see typos, forgive me. I did this, not the secretary. They would have done a better job. The conclusion. Here it is. Here it is, last verse, and we're done. Do you not know that those who minister of the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that they who preach of the gospel should live of the gospel. That doesn't mean they need to live right. right. That means support. Look at your notes. I put these in for you. Conclusion. Look at it. Read it with me. Just... As priests in the Jewish temple were compensated for their work, Paul concludes that those who preach the gospel should be compensated and benefited for their labors in serving Jesus Christ. Last thing, investing in God's servants is a good investment in spite of weakness, faults, and imperfections. Let's stand, and I'll read this last one. Remember this, they are serving the King of Kings who... Commission them. Amen? Amen. All right. That's the word of the Lord. You see-